Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Cannabis is coming. Should UK investors be looking to take a position in pot stocks? Stamp duty pulls in more cash for the Treasury coffers. And why differences in the way men and women save and spend appear at a very young age. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast on personal finance and investing. I'm James Pickford, Deputy Editor of FT Money, and I'll be giving you this week's money news in downloadable form. Marijuana is supposed to have a relaxing effect. But anyone who's chosen to invest in cannabis-related businesses rather than inhale the stuff will have found themselves on a wild stock market ride uh, in recent months. Activity is focused on the US and Canada, uh, where legislation has moved ahead. But big businesses elsewhere are looking at the trend and how they might profit from the plant's medicinal properties, which are becoming better understood. Amy Williams has been tuning into the cannabis boom for FT Money and joins us now. What's been going on in the North American market? Well, everyone's very excited about Canada legalising marijuana for recreational use, which is set to happen this month. So Canada is very much the epicentre of the cannabis industry at the moment. And all of the major players are currently listed in the Toronto Stock Exchange. So there's a range of companies. They're mostly interested in medicinal marijuana, but some of them are also developing a range of consumer-focused products and looking to partner with big consumer companies to bring cannabis aromas and flavorings into mainstream products and those sorts of products you're mentioning do they contain the active element of cannabis i mean are these things that actually get you high or, or are they more about medicinal uh, value no, so, the, so there's there's two main strands of company here there's uh, companies that are mostly interested in medicinal cannabis and in developing cannabis uh, as, a, as a treatment to manage symptoms uh, for, for illnesses that you know might benefit from from that sort of thing uh, and and they're kind of uh, almost pharmaceutical companies and then there are um, companies who are uh, interested in uh, the the range of flavors and aromas that can be drawn out of the plant now you can separate the plant into different constituent parts and it's possible to take out the elements that that give people the high that we might associate with cannabis uh, and, and just use elements that might have some psychoactive effect but nothing too severe um, so it might be likened to caffeine we'll say uh, or a very low dose of alcohol um, and so and so those elements are are the things that they're investigating these companies for 
more consumer. And we've been hearing some uh, some quite big names in in the drinks industry, haven't we? Yeah, we have. Uh, Coca Cola was reported to be meeting with with some of the Canadian companies. Aurora was one of them. Diageo as well has 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 been sniffing around. And Constellation, which is uh, a company that the company that makes Corona beers, uh, recently upped its stake in another cannabis company and is and is really kind of the the most interested and the most committed to the sector so far. And that's really excited investors because. That's the clearest example of a, of a big listed company looking at this sector, the cannabis sector, very seriously. So for a UK investor who wants to get into this, uh, are there options? There are some small UK listed companies. As I said, the main excitement at the moment is in North America. And really, some of the share prices on these Canadian companies very volatile. You really wouldn't necessarily want to be going in there unless you really knew what you were doing. The UK at the moment is a bit quieter and we're at the point where fund managers are starting to sit up and take notice of these companies in North America and wondering what will happen next. So we'd expect big global companies like Coca-Cola or Diageo to roll out any products that they come up with across Europe. And so UK equity fund managers I've spoken to have said that they're more interested in speaking to the companies that they might hold in their portfolios. Uh, Tobacco companies were named and big drinks companies to ask them what they're doing to prepare themselves for this trend or to take advantage of the opportunities that might come up. Yes, a, a sort of mainstream fund that one can invest in. There's not. There are some very niche passive funds that if you really wanted to to invest in, you could. However, you'd have to know what you were doing. As I said, some of the share prices on these companies are very volatile. Uh, there's not really enough of them to make a convincing index. It wouldn't really be the most sensible way to gain exposure and you might be better off waiting to see what industries might benefit from the liberalization of cannabis and and actually just looking at your your fund managers and seeing which of those portfolios you'd most like to to hold Thanks very much there to Amy Williams. You can read more about the risks and opportunities of investing in the emerging cannabis industry in FT Money's cover feature this weekend. The subject of stamp duty can generally be relied upon to bring out some pretty strong views among FT readers. When I wrote an article last week about a surge in stamp duty receipts for the Treasury, one reader commented that stamp duty was a revolting tax that should bring shame on the government uh, for raising the costs of what was a social necessity. Another reader thought the recent stamp duty reforms had actually done a great job of tackling rampant house price growth in London and the South East. Last weekend, we had more news on stamp duty as a proposed surcharge for foreign buyers emerged from the Conservative Party conference. Someone who knows a good deal about the impact of this levy on home purchases is Lucian Cook, Director of Residential Research at Estate Agent Savills. He's here with us to discuss the latest developments. Lucian, thanks for coming in. My pleasure. One of the interesting things about the latest figures is that London generated a record tax take in the last financial year, but at the same time, 
the number of housing transactions in the capital actually fell. How, how do you explain that? Well, I, th- look, I think there's a couple of things um, going on there. The first is that the measures that were introduced with a 3% surcharge for additional homes has been a big revenue raiser was in uh, 2016, for, the, yeah, for the Treasury, much more than they had ever anticipated it would be. And a good chunk of that continues to come out of London. Uh, total receipts uh, for stamp duty above £9 billion for the first time, an increase of £685 million, and a third of that increase uh, came out of the London market. Now, one of the other reasons for that is that there's two boroughs in London that alone generate about a billion pounds of stamp duty receipts, K&C, uh, so Kensington and Chelsea and City of Westminster. And contrary to what was expected by a lot of estate agents working in that market, their receipts went up. They went up by a figure of about £120 million. Mm. And there were worries that the second homes and buy to let surcharge, the 2016 uh, additional thing you mentioned, would kill those markets. But it just appears to have gone from strength to strength in terms of the receipts generated by those additional home purchases. These are not normally forced purchases, are they? So what's the psychology there? What's going on? Well, I think there's a couple of different things going on there. Firstly, we know that the mortgaged buy to let market has been clobbered. Um, That's been hit pretty hard, not just by additional stamp duty, but also by that restriction on uh, tax relief for um, mortgage interest. And as rates rise and that restriction comes in, I think, you know, that will have a continued impact. So the real question is, if that's come back, and we know that's fallen, transactions there have fallen by about 37% over a two-year period, what's made up the difference? And I think what this really is, is a reflection for cash purchasers, how much they've taken up the slack, and their continued appetite for bricks and mortar investments. Mm. The figures don't take into account the second quarter of this year, which suggested stamp duty receipts were coming down a little. Do you think that's a trend? Do you think we'll see them drop further? And I suppose the supplementary question to that is how much of that is due to uncertainty about Brexit? Yeah, well, I mean, if you look at what's going on in the housing market generally, we're now at very, very low levels of price growth. Uh, Nationwide uh, came out this week and said annual house price growth across the country is at 2%. Uh, They suggested that we've seen marginal falls in prices within the London market uh, on a year-on-year basis. And transaction levels are pretty turgid. They're pretty static. And indeed, the second quarter uh, were a little bit weaker. So you know, I suspect uh, it's going to be difficult for that record of nine billion to be broken any time, uh, particularly soon. Uh, we know that the government has tried to supplement those stamp duty receipts by the new measures it's planning to bring in, uh, which is a, an additional charge on overseas buyers somewhere between uh, one and three percent. But in reality, that is going to raise precious little uh, revenue. That looks much more like it's a political measure than anything to really drive uh, stamp duty receipts in the way that some of the other measures have. I was going to ask you about that. Um, what what effect do you think it will have on the uh, the appetite of overseas buyers? You know how price elastic are these people generally? Yeah, I, the really interesting thing here, I think, is is the scale at which it's intended to raise revenue. So they're saying if it's a one percent charge, it's only going to raise. 40 million. Mm. And if it's a 3% charge, it's going to be 120 million. You know, on the face of it, they sound like quite big numbers. But if you compare that to the 3% charge on additional homes, that's raising 1.9 billion. So in mm. terms of affecting the housing market as a whole, I don't think, you know, I don't think that it is particularly um, significant. The, the issue is, what does it do for sentiment mm. for overseas buyers uh, who have mm. already seen exposure to the original 3% increase? They've seen much greater exposure to capital gains tax and inheritance tax. So I think you'll see a bit of a knee-jerk reaction to start with. They'll then work out 
exactly what it means for them in terms of their budgets. They'll be a bit more price sensitive. But perversely, what you could see is because this has been uh, uh, trailed before it will be implemented, much like when you saw the 3%, you could see a bit of a rush of buying activity for those people looking to avoid the additional charge when it comes in. And, uh, you know, in your experience, would you expect nearly all of those um, overseas buyers to be paying, already paying the additional uh, rate, the additional surcharge in stamp duty, and say this would be on top of that? Yeah, it looks, it certainly looks like that's the case, because if you look at the liability for the for 3% surcharge for additional homes, that has regard to homes that you own anywhere in the world. So on the assumption that the investors that are coming from overseas are homeowners in their own country, then they will be bearing the 3% plus whatever comes in uh, once uh, Theresa May's announcement uh, is enacted in some way. Lucian Cook, thank you very much indeed. For our final item, I'm joined in the studio by Lucy Warwick-Ching, digital editor of FT Money and author of our Family Money column. Lucy has been looking at how we teach our children about personal finance and has found new research suggesting gender differences uh, in the way we think about money are set from a very young age. Girls often feel less confident about money than boys or say they don't understand it, and this attitude can often follow them into later life. Lucy, it seems extraordinary that we're still seeing these kinds of differences in boys and girls or in this day and age. What's going on here between either parents and children or between boys and girls? Well, there's a new piece of research out this week from HSBC that says actually parents talk to their children differently, as you said, but they are talking to girls much less about money than they're talking to their sons, which is shocking to me and slightly depressing because it's very important from a really really young age to um to talk to all children about money and the importance of money and so this piece of hsbc research as well as saying that parents talk to their children differently they also said that parents tend to avoid talking about money in front of their children but again there's a gender differential there this piece of research says that the parents talk about money in front of their sons but not in front of their daughters so it's different again and this is backed up by research from uh, my bank a financial charity that recently found that more girls than boys had a crisis of confidence in making money decisions so this these kind of habits are starting from a really young age which is something that we need to change Should we be worried about this in terms of the impact on, I mean, is there any evidence about the impact on on financial competence later in life? Well, there's a a study from the University of Cambridge that is often referred to. And this study actually found that skills um, start to be formed at a very young age. So um, from the ages of three and seven. And so these habits that are formed in, in children, financial habits, they tend to be carried through into a later life. I know that must that can change, and if, if we work on it very hard, then that can change. But it's just really important that we understand that habits get formed really early on. And why is this important? Because there's been a lot of talk recently about, you know, the gender pay differences and glass ceiling for women. So it's important to instill in confidence and financial confidence in girls as well as boys. As for your questions columnist, I get lots of letters in from older women who perhaps have have not had a handle on the finances because they've relied on their husbands to take charge of the household finances. And then they, they may be getting divorced in later life. So they are very vulnerable financially. So it's very important that men and women are confident with handling money. I suppose the question is, if, particularly if this, this kind of behaviour among parents is going on 
subconsciously. How do you break these stereotypes? How do you give give all your kids a good grounding? And you just have to be aware. Or, or I think awareness is the first place to start. And as a parent myself, I have been given lots of books, um, such as the Good Night Stories for Rebel Girls. So it's kind of breaking down the gender stereotypes more generally. But I think we need to now focus in on the financial aspect of it. So there's been a, a book that's been launched this week. You know, we're, we're kind of taking it with a pinch of salt, but there's a, a, a book and it's called Princesses Can Do It For Themselves. So it's just focusing on these strong female role models and that you don't need a man to uh, pay for you financially through life. So it, it's a start. We've talked a lot on the podcast about the importance of financial education and personal finance education within schools and that's starting to change although it's not changing quickly enough and we need to I guess emphasize the importance of maths even getting uh, children confident about paying for things in the supermarket so when you're out and about with them discuss your shopping list discuss the prices of different things perhaps give them a your children perhaps a competition see who can come back with the you know cheapest tomatoes or or things that 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 could get them interested and perhaps get them off your back in the supermarket and perhaps stop the pester power of them trying to get you to buy them an expensive toy that they don't need i suppose there could be a knock-on benefit as well for for adults themselves if if parents uh, if, if both partners are not quite as competent as they might be actually this kind of exercise could help them too Yes, exactly. There's a new piece of research out this week from the Money Advice Service saying that, you know, while they started off trying to instill knowledge about finance in children, actually that had a knock-on effect on the parents because the parents who were trying to teach their children about money actually also got some education about um, how important it is to not be in debt. And a year on from one of these surveys that's been carried out, parents are actually showing that they are not in debt as much because of the the fact that they are getting more education about this. So kind of all around, it's, it's good for everybody to be knowledgeable and in control of their finances, not just children. Thank you very much there to Lucy Warwick-Ching. You can read her column in full in FT Money this weekend. That's all from The Money Show this week. If you've got a story you'd like the FT Money team to follow up or a question to pose to our team of financial experts, get in touch. Email us, money at ft.com. Tweet us at FT Money or comment on our articles online at ft.com slash money. We'll be back next Thursday at the usual time. Goodbye. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. 
Shopify.com slash work.